to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through the Library of America 100 pages at a time while giving my commentary, thoughts, opinions, some historical context, and whatever else comes into my mind. In this episode, we'll be continuing our study of the novels of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, this is the second part, second episode on Not Without Laughter by Langston Hughes. I encourage you to go back and listen to the first episode um, on this novel. <clears throat> well, where we left off, um, where we left off, our main character, Sandy, um, is left alone, left alone by most of his family. His mother and father have left Kansas to go to the city to pursue a career, pursue a life together. They were sick of being apart, but they can't really afford to take care of the kids. So they left, um, him with his maternal grandmother, Hagar. His younger sister, Harriet, who he had a very close relationship with, left to join the circus, and she essentially became a prostitute after a couple after some time uh, when the circus thing didn't work out. And then he also has an older, um, sister, uh, older aunt who, who married earlier, is doing well, but lives in, this, lives in a city nearby, but doesn't really... Um, focus on taking care of his of her nephew so he's left alone with his uh, grandmother now as we've talked about in the previous episode one of the major themes so far in this book especially in the first half is just how dominated Sandy's life is by by women he really doesn't have very many strong male figures the one he has his father is often belittled by particularly his grandmother so he's really in this um, situation where he's kind of seeking out um, fatherly companionship he very much loves his father but he knows his father is is absent and now he doesn't even have his mother um, or his aunt did i say sister before harriet is his younger aunt youngest aunt okay at this halfway point in the novel we're given a reminder of the very first scene in the novel which is the storm that destroyed the family porch this also serves to remind us how much life has changed for sandy he got his father back only to lose both of his parents within a few months. His beloved aunt Harriet has also left. Sandy is now living alone with his grandmother, burdened by a feeling that he must take care of her for the rest of her life. Hagar is also feeling very lonely at losing her children, and she invests almost all of her time and energy on Sandy, telling him stories of war and about the end of slavery. slavery. She blames the ending of slavery for the breaking up of the black community. Well, the freedom came, and all the blacks scattered like buckshot, going for, to live in town. And the yard blacks say, I's an old fool. I's free now. Why don't you come with me? But I say no. I'm going to stay with Miss Jean, and I stayed. I, I allowed ain't nary one of them colored folks need me like Miss Jean did, so I went with them. As time passed, 
it passed and it passed and the old house got rusty for lack of paint and those things and it go and fall to pieces and miss jenny said hagar i ain't got nobody in the world but you and i say miss jenny i got no one in the world but you either so the point here is that this mobility caused by the end of slavery uh reflected actually in the life of this family because they're seem to be descendants of exodusers which are people who left the south to go to kansas um, after the civil war but then much more so during the harlem renaissance we were with the railroads and the great migration uh, moving to cities especially younger generations it's breaking up this family and this is something hagar really is bothered by and it gives her a lot of nostalgia for even slavery uh, although she was i think she was still quite young when she was a slave but um, she has this kind of positive image of the old days she tries to reinforce this idea to sandy that white people are not so bad she often says she feels sorry for them and she doesn't want resentment towards whites to get in the way of expanding amount, the amount of love in the world Here's what she says to him. White people maybe mistreats you and hates you, but when you hate them back, use the one who's hurted, because hate makes your heart ugly. That's all it does. It closes up the sweet door to life and makes everything small and mean and dirty. Honey, there ain't no room for hate. White folks hating blacks and blacks hating white folks. There ain't no room in this world for nothing but love, Sandy Child. That's all they room for, nothing but love. And that's how chapter chapter 16 ends. Oh, and by the way, in these quotes, especially in this novel, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not bleeping out the N-word. I'm just changing it usually to black. Um, if you go back to my episode on Kane, I talk about my feeling about the languages, uh, language and how I'm going to present it um, in these Harlem Renaissance novels. So um, you can fill it in if you feel the need to have that authenticity or just look at the text yourself. Um, chapter 17, Barbershop. So Hagar takes an attendant named Wim Dogberry, a brick mason, and he has the potential to provide some much needed male influence on Sandy. Hagar grows increasingly protective of Sandy, however, not even allowing him to go play baseball with his friends, creating tasks for him to do at home um, to really fill up his time, keeping him out of these external influences. Eventually, money gets Hagar to relent on this when Sandy gets an offer, a job offer at a barbershop. Taking this job is an eye-opening moment for Sandy, and, we, and he quickly finds himself in another world. First, there's a lot of male influence. There's a lot of gossip. There's talking about women in very different ways than he gets at home. He learns to joke around with old people. He learns to listen to and tell stories. He gets some politics as well. So he's able to kind of break free a little bit from his grandmother's opinions about things he's also introduced to discussions about about women and sexuality it's a big change in his life and it's perhaps the first time he's able to fully escape the burden in his relationship with his grandmother even when his father was living with them for a few months his father tended to defer to um, his mother-in-law on issues of discipline and raising the kids and he kind of tend to agree with her so um, this is kind of a chance for him to break free of the, that stuff Chapter 18, Children's Day. Sandy is beginning to mature, symbolizing, symbolized by his purchasing of a new suit with his own money. His grandmother still wants him to grow up to be a man like Booker T. Washington. That is, in her mind, respectable, educated, religious, and not too much of a troublemaker. Kind of the good moral person. And again, I'm reminded that this debate between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois was not just something that historians have you know, kind of projected on this period of time. It was actually, a, you know, 
something that's reflected in these texts. It was a, seems to have been a big debate among African Americans at the time. Now, during a carnival, Sandy experiences his first direct touch of racial discrimination. I don't want to say his first, but one of his first major ones. When he's refused entry into, because he had problems in school earlier, but um, I guess he experienced another direct touch of, of racial discrimination. When he's refused entry into a children's event or a children's exhibit at the carnival, even though he had a ticket. He had the ticket and he was refused entry because he's black. He tries to tell this story to his grandmother, and she actually tries to justify it. But this neighbor woman, Sister Johnson, she's much more radical, much more white-hating, much more resentful of whites and of slavery. She's of that same generation of Hagar, but she has a very different point of view. So she expresses this opinion that is just one more example of the hatred of whites towards black. And, and she's, she kind of tells Sandy that this is life, and this is what you're going like, to have to change or put up with. But this is what it is. Sandy concludes that, quote, Kansas is getting like the South, right? Um, so, yeah, Sandy was in a school with white children. I mean, there weren't that, I guess there weren't enough um, blacks for Jim Crow to really be fully implemented in, in Kansas. And I apologize, I should have looked up uh, race law in Kansas uh, before coming back to this episode. But anyways, um, you know, he's concluding Kansas is becoming more like the South at this point. Um, now, to make things worse, he gets a letter from his mother around the same time who's complaining about hard, how hard things are getting in Detroit for them and how basically she can't really send for him. She can't send money. And, you know, that's just that's just life, I guess, for um, this family. Chapter 19, $10 in costs. So Sandy gets a gets a chance to take a job at a hotel. Now, Hagar, of course, will have none of it. She still thinks hotel work is basically one step from being a criminal. She eventually relents because of the need for money, uh, because Angie, his mother, is not sending any money from, from Detroit. Now, this is the second time we see Hagar really worried that one of the people in her life is kicking a job in the hotel. Earlier, it was Harriet who was thinking about getting a job in a hotel, and, and Hagar basically trying to block that, stop that, saying it's prostitution, it's drinking, it's, it's, it's sin. Quote, but Aunt Hagar was not much pleased when Sandy came home that night and she heard the news. I never wanted none of my children to work in no hotels, she said. There's evil, full of nastiness, and you don't learn nothing good in them. I don't want you to go there. Sandy replies, but Grandma... I want to send Mama a Christmas present. And just look at my shoes, all worn out. And he goes on and on about money and how they don't have anything. So this becomes the way she's able to convince, um, he's able to convince her to let him take this job. But as to reinforce her fears of losing Sandy the way she lost her daughters, they find news report telling of how Harriet was arrested for streetwalking. The fine is $10 in costs, court costs. Now, it's, it's pretty clear that Harriet has been working as a prostitute by this point in the story, at least partially. Uh, and later on, Sandy's going to see her in a, in essentially a brothel and find her there. But it, it's not clear to me that she was legitimately arrested as a prostitute in this time. Reading through this novel, it seems she was involved in sex work from time to time, but perhaps at this point she was arrested on propped up charges, which was not uncommon in Jim Crow era America for black men and women to be hauled off to jail for vagrancy um, or other, you know, dubious crimes. Now, Hagar's response for this news is that she must pray for the souls of her children. 
It's not about racism. It's not racial discrimination. It's not economic injustice or anything like that. It's a religious issue for, for Hagar. So, um, chapter 20, Hey Boy. So this chapter is mostly about Sandy's job working at the Drummer Hotel. He's working mostly as a janitor, and he seems to like the work. He seems to be quite good at the work. Harriet visits him and gives him a little card, which has her dress on it. But she doesn't talk to him very long. She just kind of gives him the card and, and moves on. One thing that Hager was right about was this relationship between the hotels and crime. Um, it's one of those things like, yes, there was criminal activity taking place in hotels. It doesn't mean that everything in the hotel was a bad influence on, on Sandy. In fact, Sandy's experience in the hotel is worsened really by racism, not by, not by um, crime itself. So, but what's happening here is that the hotel has official bootleggers for guests. So these are people who, I guess, either produce or just have connections to bootleggers. They're able to get alcohol. This is prohibition times, right? In this hotel, it is a man named George Clark. He supplies booze essentially to prostitutes who maintain rooms in the hotel. And, and, and men come in and out, drink, you know, and, you know, have sex and, and whatnot. So that's, that's kind of this underground business going on in the hotel. And Sandy knows about it, and it's part of life working at the hotel. But much more devastating for him is that one evening while shining shoes in the lobby, he's with a group of drunken white men, and he's forced to endure their racial abuse. One asks him to dance for him, and it's kind of that old canard that, you know, black people are good dancers, so like, dance for me, you know, boy. Sandy refuses and walks out at the lobby, causing a scene and upsetting the clerk, who shouts out to him, hey, you black bastard. So this kind of ends his experiment in working for uh, the, the hotel. All right, next chapter, chapter 21, is called Note to Harriet. He looked at the note from Harriet. Now, th this chapter is not linear. Um, it's the one nonlinear chapter in the in the book. It's it's a bit off-putting at first, but it, it, it works out okay. Um, he looks at a note from Harriet and finds the address is in a kind of a bad part of town, and he worries about showing his mother where Harriet is. And the description of this part of town is glorious. I, I love this part of these Harlem Renaissance novels where you get this descriptions, these slices of life, of, of urban life. At night in the bottoms, Victorlas moaned and banjos cried ecstatically in the darkness. Summer evenings, little yellow and brown and black girls in pink or blue bungalow aprons laughed invitingly in doorways, and dice rousled with the staccato gaiety of jazz music on long tables in rear rooms. Pimps played pool, bootleggers lounged in big red chairs. Children ran in the streets until midnight, with no voice of parental authority forcing them to an early sleep. Young blacks fought like cocks and enjoyed it. White boys walked through the street, winking at colored girls. Men came in autos. Old women ate pig's feed and watermelon and drank beer. Whiskey flowed. Gin was like water. Soft, indulgent laughter didn't care about anything. And deep-throated voices that had long ago stopped rebelling against the ways of this world rose in song. To those who lived on the other side of the railroad and never realized the utter stupidity of the word sin, the bottoms was vile and wicked. But to the girls who lived there and the boys who pimped and fought and sold liquor there, sin was a silly word and it did not enter their heads. They had never looked at life through the spectacles of the Sunday school. The glasses good people wore would have fitted their eyes, for they hung no curtain of words between themselves and reality. To them, things were what they were. Really wonderful. And it's actually the th a big theme of the novel, which I'll, I'll try to explain later on. 
So he goes to the address, and it seems that Harry is, is working in a, in a brothel. Um, so Sandy's kind of waiting in the lobby, and men are coming down the steps, you know, smoking cigarettes or whatever. So it's, you know, it's, it's the traffic that really gives the, the clue that this is a brothel. Uh, Sandy's been sent to deliver a message to Harriet from Tempe, reporting that Hagar is sick. Um, the grand, you know, Harriet's mother, Sandy's grandmother, is sick. A couple days earlier, so it kind of goes back to a couple days earlier, Sandy comes home from school to find Hagar on the ground having fallen. So when news of this gets to Tempe, the older rich daughter, she takes control of the situation and tries to contact Angie by wire, but they don't have an up-to-date address for her. Sandy, however, is able to contact Harriet since he has the address, and then it kind of loops back to the beginning of the chapter. So that's the one nonlinear chapter, I think, of this whole book. Chapter 22, Beyond the Jordan. So as Hagar dies, she gives Sandy a watch, which she reclaimed from a pawn shop. And, and that's just another reminder of how bad the economic situation for this family was, that this very important watch, this family heirloom, had to be pawned at one point. But Hagar, I guess, had enough money that she was able to get it back from the pawn shop. It's purchased for, it was purchased for him by her mother originally. After she dies, they're, able, they're still unable to reach Angie in Detroit. Tempe is not able to write her until finally a letter arrives telling the family that Angie and Jimboy had moved on to Toledo. Um, Tempe writes back that your mother, you know, our mother died. I'll be taking care of Sandy from now on. Chapter 23, Tempe's house. So this starts a new phase of life for Sandy. Tempe has money. She has resources. She lives in a relatively good community with good schools. Sandy is able to focus on his studies and cultivate himself without worrying about work. Tempe hopes to see Sandy grow up into a political African-American leader, more akin to W.E.B. Du Bois than Booker T. Washington. So we got kind of this uh, different influence. He, he's, he's finally away from this influence of his, of his grandmother with a much more conservative religious um, perspective, focused on hard work and, and morality and, and, and sin and all that stuff. But in another way, he's still in a similar situation, finding his life controlled by the wishes of a strong woman. Tempe wants to eradicate as much as possible the legacy of slavery and is, is focused on racial uplift. Um, so that scene we just saw about the bottoms where Harriet living, it's being contrasted here with Tempe's point of view. Blues and spirituals, Tempe and her husband hated because they were too Negro. In their house, Sandy dared not sing the words of Swing Low Sweet Chariot for what had darky slave songs to do with respectable people and ragtime belonged in the bottoms with the sinners. It was ironically strange that the bottom should be the only section of Stanton where Negroes and whites mingled freely on equal terms. That part of town, according to Tempe, was lost to God, and the fact that she had a sister living there burned like a hidden cancer in her breast. She never mentioned Harriet to anyone. So that gives us a good idea of what uh, Tempe's attitude are, well, is to, to working-class black life. Chapter 24, The Shelf of Books. One of the biggest changes in Sandy's life by moving to this good part of town in Stanton, uh, moving in with his aunt, is he has educational resources that were not available to him. While Jim Boy could barely afford the basic school books, Tempe has a massive library of literature, of classics, of history, of politics. It's really an impressive library. And at his school, Sandy becomes a good student rising really quickly, winning awards, making a name for himself, and he even gets a bit of a girlfriend. Tempe reminds Sandy constantly that he should follow the model of W.E.B. Du Bois. 
Teaching Negroes to be servants, that's all Washington did. Du Bois wants our rights. He wants us to be real men and women. He believes in social equality. But Washington, huh. The fact that he had established an industrial school damned Washington in Tempe's eyes. For there were enough colored workers already. But Du Bois was a doctor of philosophy and studied in Europe. That's what Negroes needed to do. Get smart, study books, go to Europe. Don't talk to me about Washington, Tempe fumed. Take Du Bois for your model. So there's that. It's again this constant pressure to be like some ideal figure in the eyes of this of a woman whether it was Hagar for kind of Booker T. Washington or Tempe for Du Bois. Chapter 25 is called Pool Hall. In this chapter Sandy finds a pool hall in Stanton to be a useful place to go to avoid the rigid educational regimen enforced by his aunt. It's the very place that neither Hagar nor Tempe would have liked to see him go for very different reasons of course but they both reject this kind of part of black life. It reflects a type of resistance to their domineering visions of his life. So it's it seems to me it's the first time that Sandy is able to express himself and do something of his own will. Earlier he was able to work at the hotel of course, but that was he was able to get his he had to get Hagar's permission for. Here he's really doing it on his own without the permission of these women in his life. So it's kind of a maturing individualization moment in his life. It becomes a big part of his social life, this pool hall. He also gets news at the pool hall about lynchings, about the rising success of Harriet, although people in the pool hall comment on Harriet's past life as a sex worker, and it's a bit embarrassing for, for Sandy. But it also reflects the kind of open, chummy, gossipy um, conversations that take place. Um, yeah, of course, he grew up in a gossipy household as well, but this is a little bit different because it's men, and I, I do think... I don't know if it's ever stated explicitly in this novel, but I get this sense that that Langston Hughes is really lamenting, for his character at least, the lack of a of this kind of male working class influence with because he lost Jim Boy basically to the vagrancies of 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 life, you know, having to get a job, you know, having to move from place to place. So we start to get towards the end of the novel here with chapter twenty six, the doors of life. This chapter is set during Sandy's second year in high school and during the war. He spends some of his... During the war, so... I said before Prohibition, maybe it's just Kansas was dry before the country was. I, I don't think the whole country had Prohibition before the war. Just give me a second. Okay, I went and looked it up. Yeah, Prohibition nationally started in 1920. I mentioned it a few times in this novel. Kansas was dry from... 1881 to 1948. So that was the longest um, state that had continual um, dry laws. So the these were, you know, the bootleggers were, it was still illegal, um, but it was dealing with local, uh, local state law. Okay. Um, anyways, during the war, Sandy spends some of his time on charity fundraising for the war effort. This is really all Tempe's doing. Tempe arranged these charities. It's, she, she saw the war as a chance for racial uplift, as did Du Bois and some other Harlem Renaissance figures. So she sees it as a chance for uplift, so she wants to get involved in raising money for the war effort. And she recruits Sandy in these efforts. Tempe struggles with raising Sandy with information about sex and resorts to giving him one of these coming-of-age books. It's all kind of funny and awkward where, you know, Tempe doesn't want to talk about sex to him. And uh, Tempe's husband really doesn't want to get involved anyways. 
I think he says like one thing to him in the novel about women. Um, she's much more confident in directing Sandy's political upbringing. And Sandy feels growing resentment about the roadblocks he's facing in life due to his race. There's a really interesting passage here where we start to see him maturing and thinking for himself in contrast to Tempe's kind of ornerous um, perspective. Quote, Sandy wondered if Booker T. Washington had been like Tempe's friends or if Dr. Du Bois was a snob just because he was a college man. He wondered if these two men had a good time being great. Booker T. was dead, but he left a living school in the South. Maybe he could teach in the South too, Sandy thought, if he ever learned enough. Did colored folks need to know the things he was studying in books now? Did French and Latin and Shakespeare make people wise and happy? Jap Logan never went beyond the seventh grade, and he was happy. And Jim Boy never attended much school either. Maybe school didn't matter. You get a good job, and you be smart. And white, too. That was the trouble. You had to be white. So, um, developing a bit of racial consciousness um, as he grows up. Chapter 27, Beware of Women. Now, Tempe is increasingly frustrated with Sandy's maturity, especially him spending time in the pool hall and spending time with, with a young girlfriend, Pancetta. Mr. Siles, Tempe's husband, does not help matters, but only adds that Sandy should watch out for women who might try to corrupt him. And this is like, I, I think this might be the only thing he says to him in the whole book, actually. Um, just this line, like, watch out for women. It's not very useful. It's not very helpful to a young man. Um, both are particularly worried about his girlfriend, Pancetta. Um, he consents and says, okay, I'll break up with her. And he slowly distances himself from his girlfriend, Pancetta. He starts to feel bad about um, this and tries to reconnect with her later. But one of the other boys kisses Pancetta in front of him and touches her intimately. This boy later tells Sandy that Pancetta is just easy. So, you know, what do you expect? So this kind of hurts him. And he realizes that he was maybe being played a little bit by this, this woman. And, you know, that's another important lesson in his growing up. Chapter 28, Chicago. So Sandy gets a note from his mother inviting him to go live in Chicago. She tells him that there's a job waiting for him as an elevator boy. Tempe is distraught at this, fearing that her effort to cultivate a black leader will fail if he falls under the influence of, of his parents again. Anyways, though, he decides to go to Chicago. His first night in Chicago was pretty rough due to the closeness of his bedroom to the elevated train. And there's a really wonderful description here of, of the situation he's in. Um, Jim Boy's not there. He's actually already moved on for another job. So he's living with his mother in a small apartment right next to the elevated train. Uh, and Sandy, who's, you know, grew up in the countryside, and he spends time in a small town, but Stanton, but not a big city like Chicago. Chapter 29, Elevator. Now, this is about Sandy's new job as an elevator boy. The chapter opens with Angie worrying about Jim Boy, who is in the wind again. Sandy quickly learns to resent his elevator job, and he cannot believe that some people have kept working there for years and years. Um, and I've actually had this experience. I've worked jobs in factories, um, in offices from time to time. And, you know, I see people who have been there years and years. And, and I have had a hard time keeping jobs. And I get bored really easily with places. I mean, there's jobs I've worked at for one or two days before quitting. So, um, but I, I have, a, I, when I'm at those places, I have a hard time believing that people could work there for, for a year, much less years and years. 
right? I, I understand Sandy's feeling here. I mean, how can you, you know, eat that shit, you know, for years and years? I, I don't, I don't see it. But um, maybe just some people have a different psychology, or or maybe it's just necessity. Maybe it's just that brutal reality of necessity. Um, anyways, he decides he needs to focus on his studies, and he starts to try to figure out how can he escape this life of service. He doesn't. He decides he doesn't want to be a servant for essentially white people. He thinks of Washington and Douglas and how they got an education while working hard. Um, Washington, Booker T. Washington, I mean, and how he was worked his way through school. How Douglas, you know, was working in Baltimore and learned to read while doing that. So he uses them as kind of inspiration. He cannot give up his work because of lack of money for the family. He's basically the difference between starvation and homelessness for his mother and him. He thinks about what his aunt told him about working class blacks and begins to have an epiphany. And here's really where we get to the theme of the novel. So I'll read it. Clowns, jazzers, bands of dancers, Harriet, Jimbo, Aunt Hagar, the band of dancers. Sandy remembered his grandmother whirling around in front of the altar at revival meetings in the midst of the other sisters, her face shiny with light, arms outstretched as though all the cares of the world had been cast away. Harriet in the backyard under the apple tree, Eagle rocking in the summer evenings to the tune of the guitar. Jim Boy singing. But what? But was that why Negroes were poor? Because they were dancers, jazzers, clowns? No, it was the other way around. The other way around would be better. Dancers because of their poverty. Singers because they suffered. Laughing all the time because they must forget. It's more like that, thought Sandy. A band of dancers, black dancers captured in a white world. Dancers of the spirit, too. Each black dreamer, a captured dancer for the spirit. Aunt Hagar's dreams for Sandy, dancing far beyond the limitations of their poverty, of their humble station of life, of their dark skins. So this ends chapter 29, which is the penultimate chapter in the book. And here we get the theme. We get the explanation of the title of the book, Not Without Laughter. And the explanation is that, in other words, it's he thinks of his aunt, and he thinks Mr. Siles gets it backwards, his his aunt's husband. Poverty causes black people to seek a life of joy. Racial oppression, poverty, violence comes first. And what people blame as the cause of poverty, the singing, the dancing, the living a life for a little bit of pleasure, is actually the response to this oppression. It's not the cause of it. So this is the big breakthrough. And this is the meaning of the title, Not Without Laughter. Laughter is the survival mechanism. Laughter is the means of enduring this horrible situation. Chapter 30, Princess of the Blues. Now with now this knowledge in our head, we can finish the novel with a celebration. Harriet is coming to Chicago to perform, having become a famous singer. After the show, the family reunites and talk about old times in Stanton. Harriet starts to talk to Angie about allowing Sandy to go back to school full-time and even gives some money to help support this effort. And with that, the novel ends. So uh, this is a really great, it's a wonderful coming-of-age story with a very important message that seems to cut across the debate over uplift that shapes so much of the conversation of the Harlem Renaissance, such a big theme in the other novels. This is a theme that was hinted at a few times, certainly in Quicksand you have a bit of this, you know, this um, hostility to this kind of crude uplift narrative. Um, but this novel does a better job than any of the others of really coming at this theme of, of pleasure and oppression and how they build on each other and how they are respond one is a response to the other not the other way 
And I think there's still a big part of racial prejudice in the United States is comes out of this misunderstanding about, you know, this tension. Black working class culture, Hughes argues, does not interfere with uplift and progress. Sandy is able to embrace both at various times in his life. He's able to get an education and enjoy the pool hall at the same time. Right? I've met professors who think like students who go out to drink on weekends are somehow, you know, by almost nature, bad students. As if you can't enjoy drink, drinking once in a while and enjoy, you know, studying hard. Sandy does both, actually. Not without laughter means facing the brutality of white supremacy, the brutality of uplift, education, hard work, all these things, you know, refacing that this these things aren't going to save you, aren't going to stop racial oppression and white supremacy. Ultimately, destroying racism is the solution, but in the short term, finding some happiness in life is nothing to shrug at. Whether it is Pancetta being a bit boy crazy, Harriet finding her way into the circus, Jim Boy fishing and playing the guitar, or Angie embracing fully her love for her husband. These are all survival strategies and crucially important individually and collectively. So, um, great novel. Um, but let's get into the themes, and I'll, I'll be quick because we're already at like 40 minutes here. So, um, again, I've said this with every single book in the Harlem Renaissance so far, and I probably will for the next three. The color line is a the theme of this book. It's a bit more brutal in this novel than others. Um, and it's less about the color line among blacks. There's a little bit of hinting about, you know, skin color among African-American communities. Not as much as in novels like Plum Bun or, or The Black or the Berry, of course. But um, it's it's just more about kind of the overt kind of racial oppression and economic racial oppression um, that overhangs the life of this African-American family in Kansas. Um, working class life, a second theme, part of Sandy's education is to be taught to accept and embrace service labor and his kind of coming of age is in rejecting service, ejecting the life of service. The jobs available to him are service jobs, whether it's sleeping the floors at the barber shop, or working on the elevator, being a janitor in the hotel. And in those places, those service jobs, he has to endure racism much more acutely and he resents it much more. So that's, you know, it helps us understand Jim Boy in a way, too. Why does Jim Boy move around? Now, he's more working class. He's not in the service industry so much. But we can start to understand why he couldn't live, work in one place for too long. It's just he couldn't take it um, and had to move on. Um, now, we don't know much about Jim Boy's decisions. We don't get into his head very much. But through Sandy, we can maybe start to, to map out perhaps what his motivations were. Three, public amusements, especially public amusements and their importance in places like rural Kansas. The carnival comes into town. The revival is also a form of entertainment. And we see this really with Sandy's mother, Hagar, who is very religious, very Christian. She pushes a Christian narrative on her on her children and grandson. But as Sandy realizes at the end, it's also fun for her. It's also pleasure. It's dance. It's part of dancing. It's part of laughter this theme of laughter. Um, Harriet becomes a rich or well-off, at least, through public entertainment, through amusement. So the way out for at least one member of this family out of poverty is public amusements, pleasure, right? The pursuit of pleasure. We got a lot here on the legacy of slavery. 
um, Hagar and Sister Johnson are kind of two sides of the same memory of slavery. One looking at it much more host hostily than the other. But this uh, some nostalgia for slavery, at least through Hagar, or nostalgia for, if not slavery, I, I shouldn't say that, but uh, nostalgia for certain aspects of life, black life in slavery, the community. She really was bothered that the end of slavery broke up the black family and broke up these communities. Next, emasculation. Um, fatherhood. We saw this last with Cain, and there was a few vignettes in Cain that kind of explored the emasculated man. I think you see it in Home to Harlem, too, and, you know, people, relationships in which the men were like the weaker figure, the, bringing in less money or kind of living off um, women. You have in the Black or the Berry, too, with the character of Alva. You can go back and listen to that episode and see that this here it's looked at uh, more in the question of fatherhood, of being a present father and what it means to be raised by, by women for, for Sandy. Next, the uplift and the Washington Du Bois debate. I, I won't say too much more about this, just that it's, it's a theme here and it's, it's really overt. It's not under the surface at all. These, these people, Washington and Du Bois, are talked about directly by the characters and the debate over accepting some degree of white supremacy in order to achieve uplift first. That's the Washingtonian approach versus, you know, struggling for racial and social equality now, which is a Du Bois approach. Next, mobility. Um, mobility is huge here. The characters are always moving around. Sandy is, is kind of a permanent fixture for the first half of the novel and people are moving around around him. Um, even just the day-to-day -day going to work uh, for his mother, you know, being a servant in another family. You know, he's kind of at home and the mother's moving from place to place. And that's kind of the, the first scene where they don't know where Angie is because the tornado comes and they don't know where she is. Well, it's because of this mobility is why people, you know, are missing all the time. And, you know, when Hagar dies, no one knows where Angie is. Jim Boy's off in the woods most of the time. So this mobility, it's not just the individual moving around, but it has this impact on the other people in, in their life when they really literally can't identify, can't find where they are. Of course, the whole um, novel is coming of age. So just growing up, growing up young and black in the West, you know, working class. That's um, explored in detail here. We have sex work as a theme. It's um, we've seen it before in, in novels like The Octopus, um, but some of Melville's stuff hints at it from time to time too. But um, yeah, poverty as a as a way to is leading to prostitution is is done in this part of the novel in, in this novel through the character of Harriet. Now she ends up okay. She ends up you know making a name for herself as a performer, but she still has this reputation from her time as a prostitute earlier in her life. And then a final theme is music. Music is a big part of this idea of laughter, this theme of laughter, this theme of seeking a life of pleasure. You have music in the backdrop. And, you know, as I said in the first episode, I'm not without laughter. Langston Hughes is a poet. That's what he's known for. He's not known for writing novels, and he only wrote this one novel. So as a poet, he cares about music, and it really comes off here. Jim Boy's a musician. Harriet's a musician. Uh, and then music is in the backdrop a lot of this. Whether it's religious or secular, or whether it's in the pool hall or the revival, music it runs throughout this, this tale. Um, it's only when you get to Tempe 
that music is kind of looked down upon as a sign of, you know, backwardness, racial backwardness. So with that, I will close the door on Not Without Laughter. In the next episode, we'll be examining George Schuyler's Black No More. Um, and actually, the next three novels we're going to look at in this series are all genre fiction. Um, the ones we've looked at up to now are, are very realistic, very much based on kind of the realities of black life. There's different points of view about that, but they're, they're kind of realistic novels, often reflecting heavily on the, the, the authors and the author's background. In the next three, we got a science fiction novel, Black No More, uh, speculative fiction, I guess. We have a, a crime murder mystery in Rudolph Fisher's Conjurman Dies. And then we have historical fiction in Arna Bone Temp's Black Thunder. So I'm really excited to get to the last three novels in this series on the Harlem Renaissance because they we're, we're kind of getting away from this realism and getting into some more experimental literature, which was, a, a, of course, a, a theme of the 1930s Harlem Renaissance writing. So thank you so much for listening. I will really appreciate your comments and thoughts. If you could you know, comment on the post or send me an email at 100pagescast at, at gmail.com. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you. I might even read your letters um, on air. Uh, engage directly with your, your thoughts and your opinions. Rate, subscribe, share. That, I would appreciate that as well. Um, but for that, uh, with that, I'll... I'll I'll sign off and uh, I'll say I'll see you in a uh, hundred pages.